you know, ever so often, and uh, I find myself uh, reflecting on the call of the church. Not just, not just for us as Radiant Life Church. Yes, I believe God has a call upon our lives too, but just the church in general. And I teach and used to teach, <coughs> excuse me, a class at Sagu, and it's called the Church in, in Ministry, Church in Mission and Ministry. And we talk about, you know, the seeking and saving the lost. Yes, discipling people, equipping people, and then releasing them into the ministry, you know, and that's, that is a broad brushstroke when it comes to the call of the church. But I constantly remind my students and people I've met, and I talk about this, that it is not our mission, ultimately. Because it is, like I said, ultimately God's mission. It is God's mission, and we just have the privilege of partnering with Him, right? It is God's mission. And we have the privilege of partnering with Him as the, as the visible manifestation of Christ Himself. Because if the church's mission does not line up or con- under God's mission, we are missing the point of why we exist in the first place. We just become just another club or society or just group of people who love to hang out. That's it. If we don't get God's mission... We are not being the church that God has called us to be. And that's the title of my sermon today is being the church. I've said this several times and the point I make all the, uh, like all the time. Because it's not the size of the church that matters. It's the effectness, effectiveness of the church that really matters. It's not the size. It's the effectiveness that matters. Amen. It's good. By the way, it's good to see Moni out here. If those of you who don't know, she's back. Going to SMU pretty soon. So welcome back. Praise God. God made a way. And the reason why all of us Indians are wearing a little fancy outfit is because it's Indian Independence Day. So we're celebrating too. So. <laughs> and we converted George and Nicole too. So anyway. Here's the truth, church. When we are passionate and committed to being the church that God has called us to be and are obedient to that call and what he has called us to do, that is when we are going to be effective as a church. When we are obedient to God's call And do what God is calling us to do. He will bring whoever he wants to. He'll move whoever he wants to. But the focus will always be his call. Not just upon our lives, but for us as the church. Doesn't matter whether it be, like I said, whether it be caring for one another, whether it be discipleship, whether it be, you know, some kind of ministry in the church, kid, youth, whatever, missions, whatever it may be. The question always remains, are we being faithful to God's call upon our lives as a church? And please, you all know this already. It's not limited to just the four walls who God brings inside here, right? 
are we being the church who God has called us to be beyond these four walls? Beyond the walls of the church? Are we being, truly being, and it's always the point, you know, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, are we truly being the salt and the light? Light doesn't have a big old source. No, it's one small candle lights up a whole room. A pinch of salt affects the whole dish. We never called and we will never be the majority. But we influence every area of life. And that's the call God has upon our lives, church. To be the salt and light. To be a place where His name is exalted. Because we know the scripture. When He is exalted, what? He draws people to Him. It never... It never was, it never is, and it will never be about us. It's got to be about God being exalted church. <clears throat> I said this to someone this week. Uh, we were talking and we, I just said this to someone. If you're not being a good witness for Christ, why do you think they'll come to church when you invite? I mean, why should they come to church when you invite them to church? You know, if you just want to be one of them outside the four walls, what makes you special and what makes them want to come, you know? So we need to challenge ourselves. Are we really being the salt and are we really being the light? And again, let's personally for us as a church, you know, it's pretty simple. Here at Radiant Life, what are we about? I know we, we always talk about it and I love the whole idea. Of we are about loving God and loving people. Loving God and loving people, loving God with all our hearts, with all our minds, with all our soul, with all our strength, and loving people, whomever God brings across our lives. Amen. That's the point. This morning, I'd like us to turn to the book of Acts and want us to look at the early church and to draw a few points from there and on the effectiveness of the early church. Again, this is... The word of God is true, church. It stands the test of time. Amen. This is not something unique. This is something I've gleaned through my years, through studies and, every, uh, and, uh, and other stuff. But it's something that I think we need to remind ourselves from time to time. Are we being the church that God has called us to be? Again. Let me, let me make one point here. The New Testament church and the New Testament believers, they weren't a perfect church by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, ask Paul. That's the reason he wrote those letters. But they're not, I'm not trying to say, you know, they had their troubles, they had these issues, but I'm not saying they were perfect at all, but there are points that we can look at and learn, learn from. And so Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, there. Again, there's so many points you can pick up just uh, from uh, this portion of Scripture. I'm just highlighting a few. But as we come to ha Acts chapter 4, uh, just a little bit of the background, because most of us know that Luke and Acts is basically written, uh, they kind of go together. They kind of go hand in hand. Book of Luke and book of Acts, and uh, written by, most traditionally believed, the uh, uh, by Luke, who, was, who accompanied Paul and was familiar with, uh, with Peter as well. And so you write Luke, uh, Luke ends and actually Acts, let's say we're talking about Acts. Acts chapter 1 kind of continues the gospel of Luke. And if you read it carefully, you'll see that the end of Luke and the uh, beginning of Acts, they actually overlap one another because they all talk about, they both talk about the ascension and the promise of the Holy Spirit coming down. And so Acts chapter 1, when we start the book of Acts, 
<coughs> Acts chapter 1 talks about the ascension when Jesus is taken up and it also talks about the promise of the Holy Spirit and about staying in Jerusalem till you receive that promise. And then we come to Acts chapter 2, which is the day of Pentecost. And then Peter, this amazing event that happens. And then, of course, Peter uh, preaches this amazing sermon. And essentially what we say is the birth or the beginning of the church right there. And so that's Acts chapter 2. And actually, if you want to go back a little to, sorry, I know you started at 4. But go back to chapter 2 and let's read the last few verses at uh, verse 41 onwards right there. Chapter 2, verse 41. 41, it says, those who, this is after preacher, uh, Peter preaches this message, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to everyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. We know that doesn't last too long though, right? And enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Always remember, it's the Lord added those who were being saved. And so anyway, Acts chapter 1, you see the ascension, you see the promise of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 2, you see the promise being fulfilled, the birth of the church, and you see that the church is growing at that point. And Acts chapter 3, when you come to Acts chapter 3, you see the first recorded miracle wasn't necessarily the first miracle, but the first recorded miracle that the disciples or the apostles talk about are done, right? It's not, again, please get this. It's not necessarily the first miracle that they performed, but this is the first one that's recorded, at least by, uh, in the book of Acts. It's the first recorded miracle, Peter and John. We know the story. Peter and John are making their uh, way to the temple for prayer. And of course, as they're going, there's this lame guy who cries out to them and asks them, basically asks them for some money. And then we know the saying, Peter just turns around and, you know, they, they say, silver and gold have I? None. That's the old version we learned before. Say, I don't have any silver and gold, but one thing I have, and I'll give it to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. What? And you see this miracle and the guy just jumps to his feet basically. Instantly is healed. Just like the day of Pentecost. You know when the people are amazed at what's happening. When all these uh, people in the upper room are speaking in tongues and different tongues. The people are amazed at what's happening. There's the same reaction again when they see this lame man who they knew for a long time. Is all of a sudden walking around, dancing, doing whatever, skipping, jumping, whatever. And it's the same kind of reaction that we see in chapter, chapter, um, chapter 3. Same kind of reaction. And then Peter sees this reaction. Guess he does what he did earlier. Hey, don't be amazed. He preaches to them about Jesus Christ again. It's exactly what he does, preaches about Jesus and the resurrection, and then you come to chapter 4. Like I said, you know, they enjoy the favor of all people. Didn't last too long, did it? Because now, come to chapter 4, you know the religious leaders are not too happy. 
Why? Because just a couple of months back, they managed to get rid of Jesus. And now you have these disciples and apostles doing signs and wonders and preaching about Jesus that he rose from the dead. And so that's why they were upset. Chapter uh, verse 1 and 2, the priest and the captain of the temple guard and the, and the Sadducees came to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And so they're upset with them, and it's kind of interesting. Uh, Luke writes the Sadducees because, you know, they're upset with the resurrection because the Sadducees never really believed in the resurrection. I mean, they, the Pharisees believed in it, but the Sadducees are more upset because they don't believe in a resurrection. Anyway, that's what it is, and that's why they are they're, uh they're upset with Peter, and now we know that they are arrested. Peter and John uh, are arrested. They're threatened, and of course, they're forbidden to preach about Jesus anymore. And it's kind of a fulfillment of what Jesus has said. Hey, they hated me. Guess what? They're going to hate you too for my sake. Right. And so it's beginning, you know, as much as it fulfilled the prophetic word of the promised Holy Spirit, you see the fulfillment of the persecution that's coming their way as well. And so they warned them, they threatened them, and they warned them, hey, you can't do this anymore, don't do this anymore. However, there's just one problem, right? Jesus told them that they had to do that. Jesus told them that they had to go and preach the gospel to every, every person, every creature. So Peter and John have this dilemma, basically, are they going to obey God or are they going to obey man? And that's what they say in chapter 4, verse 19, whom should we obey, God or you? We know what the answer is pretty good. And so they let them go. They don't know what to do with them. They kind of threaten them and then they let them go because they, this guy who's been paralyzed there for what, 40 years it says, and now he's standing right there. They can't do anything about it and so they let them go. But see what happens after that, and that's where I want to pick up the story, starting from verse 23 onwards. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and their elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. This is what they said. Sovereign Lord, they said. You made the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. You know, you're talking about the Messiah right there. Verse 27, indeed Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power, sorry, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Yeah, Verse 31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Amazing. 
amazing story. And actually, if you see, it's kind of a reflection of what we read earlier in chapter 2, the ending of chapter 2. It's kind of interesting because they don't go run and hide. They don't go to the local, you know, tavern to drown their sorrow. No, nothing. But what they did, and we noticed this time and time again, what they did is they go back to the church. They go back to the body of believers, if you want to call it that. And essentially what happens there is they have their own praise and worship time. When they heard Peter and John's reports, it says they raised their voice together in prayer to God. Sovereign God, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Sovereign God. The one and only God. The great I am. The beginning and the end. That's the God they worship right there. Acknowledging God's greatness. The psalmist says, I will exalt you. My God, the King, I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. That's the God they worshipped and turned to. Church, no one can comprehend the greatness of our God. I don't think we have the capacity to even get, barely scratch the surface of how great our God is. The moment Peter and John are released, they head straight to their own people. To their own people. You know a lot about a person by the group of people he hangs out with, right? And they went to their own people. They joined together. They ran to the church. They ran to the church. It challenges me sometimes. When people are in trouble, quite often they run away from the church and not run to the church. They're quick to find a solution somewhere else rather than come to God himself. I know, it's just, it always challenges church. But I think as a church and as a Radiant Life Church, we need to be a place where hurting people can come. When hurting people, people with troubles, people with issues can come and experience God himself. That's what we're about, church. Church where people run to, not run from. Anyway, looking at this early church and just thinking about things that make them an effective church. Again, I'm focusing only on a few things, but right at the beginning, I have to say this. For anything to be effective in every area of life, there has to be commitment. I know you've heard these sermons. If you've been in church long enough, you've heard the sermons before. To be effective in the kingdom of God, you have to be committed to God first. There has to be commitment. There has to be a commitment more than just one or two days, more than just in the good times. There has to be a commitment no matter what, through the valleys or whether it's a mountaintop experience, I'm committed to God. It all starts with commitment, church. Any and in every area of, my, of our lives, church. If you are committed to getting healthy, we better be committed to the plan. I can't eat whatever I want to and then down it with a gallon of sweet tea. There has to be commitment. You know that. I mean, it's not a Christian principle. It's just a fact of life. 
To be effective, you have to be committed. I always laugh at these people in the gym. I've probably shared this several times. You know, they go to the gym three times, and after that, they're looking at the mirror, flexing all the time. I'm like, come on, yeah. You got to be committed. You can't do that in three days. You can't look like a Greek god in three days. So anyway. <laughs> the truth is just a truth and a fact of life, church. In order to be effective, we need to be committed. It works in our personal life. It also works as a church. If we want to be the church that God has called us to be, we have to be committed to the church. We have to be committed to the church. If you want God to use you, you have to be committed to the church and be willing for God to use you. We have these preconceived ideas of how I want to serve the church, but just honestly seek God. Come and I'll, I'll tell you, hey, this is where we need help and I'll help you. I'll find you a place to, do, to serve, serve God. You know, to be effective, church, it takes commitment. It takes a commitment to Christ and it takes a commitment to the church. So commitment, that's where I'm going with from here. Number one, in order to be the church that God wants us to be, it starts with commitment and a commitment to unity. It's a commitment to unity. Chapter 4, verse 32, it says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. One in heart and mind. The reason the early church was effective is because they were united. And you see that phrase being one in heart and one in mind. You see that repeated several times through the book of Acts. Now united does not mean that they all agreed with each other at all times. No, they didn't. I mean, Paul himself had disagreement with Barnabas, right? And they had to go their own way. But were they less effective for the kingdom of God? No. They were united and because they were united, the kingdom of God grew because God added to that number. There has to be a commitment to unity, church. Unity is the key. I always think it's a, it's a team sport. Can you imagine people in the team doing their own thing? It's impossible. Football season's around the corner, you know. If those of you who were excited about football season, but think about it. Well, one of these, it was a clear running play, and this happens more often than not, and he uses examples so much. It was, I forget who it was. They were, call, they were calling a running play, preseason game. I was just watching the highlights. You know, they're calling a running play. I mean, sorry, he was calling a pass play, but the whole offensive line moves to the left, and the poor quarterback, I felt bad for him. I'm glad he didn't get a concussion. But everybody, they were on a different page. How can you imagine getting to the end zone if you all do your own thing? How can we be the church and be effective as a church and be the church who God has called us to unless we all are committed to God's mission and working together in unity to do what God has called us to do? I can't build my kingdom. You can't build your kingdom. Brother Dan can't do his kingdom. We are not going to push what God, and I mean accomplish what God has called us to do if we do our own thing. We are called to unity. To be, you can't, I mean it happens and, and that's why Paul has to get onto the church in Corinth. Oh, one wants to follow Apollos, one wants to follow Peter, one wants to follow whoever. He says, doesn't matter, we are all what? One body. We all have different roles. We all have different parts. But we've got to be committed to one body. 
all equal. No Jew, no Gentile, no man, no woman. They're all equal. All parts of one body. Unity in the church. And church, the unity cannot, cannot be surface level because that's hypocrisy. It cannot be surface level church. It has to be real. You got to. That's why I think we've got to ask ourselves, whatever I do or whatever I say, is it building the body, building the unity, maintaining, preserving the unity in the body, or is it not? Talk bad about people or gossip and slander. That's not unity in the church. You're always going to have trouble with somebody or the other. You know, but come talk to me or something. We'll figure it out. We're all on the same team. We all have one goal, to see God's kingdom being established on the earth. That is our purpose. That is our call, to love God and love people. We can and will be effective when we do it together. Amen. That's God's call, church. Don't go off whining and, you know, about stuff and other people. Please, just come to me. Talk to me. We'll see. Like I said, you've got to ask yourself. Is what I am doing going to unite the church or is it going to divide the church? To be the church that God has called us to be, we have to be united again. We don't have to agree about everything. We may not agree how things need to look like. And at times we may not agree, agree on how things need to be done. But we need to be united, church. It's not my will. It's His will. I've seen this time and time again. I, was, I helped a church... I helped around a church that was in transition and between pastors and, you know, they had a pastoral search committee and they came down and to two candidates. But one of the board members quit because the search committee picked someone that he didn't want. And he quit the church. I'm like, you know, and then of course he starts and tries to pull others. I'm like, come on, you can't quit just because you don't get your way. Explain to someone else, we all... I'll put it this way. Whether you like pepperoni pizza or not, we all, just use the analogy here. We all have to be pepperoni pizza, but we all come in different slices, sizes, shapes. Some get three pieces of pepperoni, some get five. It doesn't matter. It's one pizza. That's the idea, church. I use this with my team. I know it's funny. I use this with my other team, too. As long as we realize we're all the same thing, we all have our own uniqueness, unique abilities, but God, each one of us has a call upon our lives, and together we make the church. Amen. It's a call for unity, church. The best example, again, the Holy Spirit came in its power, mighty, awesome power, when they were what? Together in one accord. That's the point. The effectiveness of our church to be the church God has called us to be, we need to, to be united. Second thing. Sorry, I'm running out of time here. There's a lot to say. <laughs> Second thing. To be the church who God has called us to be, we have to be committed to prayer. We have to be committed to prayer. It says that, verse 24, they raise the voice together in prayer. When Peter and John go running back to the church and tell them what happened, they all didn't get upset and grab signs and go pick it in front of, you know, hold those picket signs or whatever in front of the temple or in front of the Sanhedrin. They didn't do that. They didn't have a pity party and like, oh, okay, I'm so sorry. And no, 
It says together what? They raise their voices together in prayer. That's the first thing. I wish and I hope and I pray that that's the first thing we do. When things don't go our way, the first thing we do is what? Take care to the Lord in prayer. If we want to be effective, if we want to be the church that God has called us to be, we need to be committed to prayer. We know this already. All the best plans, all the best programs, all the best things we can do does not matter at all if we do not pray and seek God first. Prayer is the engine, church. You've heard me say this. You know this if you've been in church long enough. Prayer is the engine that gets everything going. We got to be. To be effective in the kingdom of God, we've got to be committed to prayer. Yes, prayer in our own lives, and yes, prayer even corporately. If you, we have prayer here at, on Monday evenings, yes, we pray together as a church. Yes, we pray individually, and I'm really impressed, and I've been sharing this with a couple of other people. More than just something we do on Mondays, more than something we do on our own. I think we need to have a day where we can come together, whether it be once a year. I don't know, whatever God leads us to, but we need to come together and pray as a church. The cliche, I know the church, you know, church that prays together stays together. But the truth is this, and I say this all the time, when a, prayer, when a church prays together, the world is not the same. Prayer accomplishes stuff. Things we cannot do, things we cannot see in the natural world, when we pray, things happen, church. Things happen. Let me also say this. We can be together in prayer but not be united in prayer. You get what I'm saying? We can all be together in prayer but not united in prayer. What God wants us is unity in prayer even though we're not together in prayer. You get my point. We need to be united in prayer, church. Don't get me wrong. We need prayer. Prayer is just an expression of our dependence on God. Prayer aligns us, aligns our hearts with God's will. It gives us the strength. It gives us the breakthrough and all the other stuff. Nothing happens without prayer, church. Let me put it this way. Nothing good happens without prayer. United, committed to prayer. And after they prayed, verse 31, the place where they were meeting was shaken. and They all were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Amen. If you want to see God move like that and like never before, we have to be committed to prayer also. Amen. Number three, to be the church God wants us to be, we have to be committed to be God Christ-centered in everything we do. If you want to be the church that God has called us to be, we have to be God-centered in everything we do. I know I'm backing up a little, but when they raise the voice, what do they say? Sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. The first thing isn't, oh Lord, why is this happening to me? The first thing they do is exalt the name of their God. You place him in the highest place. You give him the honor that is due his name. That's the response they have. They didn't focus, church, on their own personal problems. What did they focus on? The power the almighty God has. Sovereign God talking about his control. He is in control of everything. And then they declare, you made the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything in them. 
Church, to be the church God wants us to be, we have to be focused on God and who He is. God has to be the center of everything we do. He has to be the focus of our worship. And when I mean, it says the focus of everything, the service, the youth, the kids, the potlucks, the outreach. It doesn't matter as long as Christ is at the center of it all. Jesus be the center of it all. God needs to be the focus, church. God needs to be the center. And that's the commitment we have to have. Like I said earlier, I can't go do my own thing. You can't go do your own thing. God needs to be the center of it all. On a personal level, and I'll just say this from experience, you've experienced this too. When we get God-centered, church, we have a proper perspective of the situations we live in or we're going through. You can be easily overwhelmed by your problem if you focus on the problem. But when you are God-centered in your life, you have the right perspective of the problems you are going through. That's exactly what they did right here. The early church, they recognized the sovereignty of God. They knew who was in control. We, just, we did a study of several of the Psalms, and you find this pattern time and time again. You find that the most powerful prayers that you find are not problem-centered. They're God-centered. You want your prayers to be effective and powerful? Make God the focus of your lives and your prayer. Nehemiah 9, just a couple examples. Nehemiah 9, he was in several, he was in trouble. You know, you have all these people coming and knocking the walls down or whatever, giving them a hard time as they're building the walls. And what does he do? Spend several minutes just praising God and remembering who God is. And that's it. Before he prayers his request. Isaiah does the same thing. He talks about God. He talks about God's guidance, God's control, faithfulness before he has this personal request. Time and time again. Exalt God. Put Him in the highest place. Recognize who He is, church, instead of coming to Him with a bucket list right away. If we want to be effective, if we want to be effective, if we want to be the church that God has called us to be, we need to be committed to being God-centered in everything we say and everything we do, church. Just um, Let me put this as a side note. When we focus on our problems, the problems get bigger and God's get smaller. It's just, it's just the way it is. How, why, I don't know. I don't understand all the psychology and everything else. It's just the way it is. You focus on your problems, your problems become big and God becomes small. When you focus on God, you know how big your God is. And then you say, is anything too hard for my God? Be God-centered, church. Sorry, gets the right focus. Back to the church to be effective about, about, if we are effective as a church, we need to promote God, not programs, nothing else, but make God the center of it all. To be the church, we have to be God-centered in everything we do. And let me say this, we have to be intentional. We got to be intentional about spending more time, just on a personal level, more time focusing on God and who He is. Because honestly, when you're God-centered, it kind of puts you in your place. And then you realize, I mean, I, like, it's like Job's friends. I don't know, who am I to even say anything at all? God doesn't want to create that kind of fear. But he's just, you know what I'm trying to say. 
Our program, we got to ask, the question is, do our programs and everything we do reflect who God really is? Is it God-centered? Unity, committed to unity, committed to prayer, committed to being God-centered. Number four, we've got to be committed to the Word of God. To be the church that God has called us to be, we have to be committed to the Word of God and what it says. We've got to be grounded on the Word of God. We've got to be built on the Word of God. Looking at what they do there, they, they, uh, when they start praising God, what do they say? They quote and narrate scripture, right? You spoke the Holy Scripture through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. The quoting essentially Psalm chapter 2, written what? Hundreds of years earlier. But the point I'm trying to make is this, church. When we are focused on scriptures, we live on scriptures. Our church needs to be built on the truth of God's word. The truth of God's word. This needs to be known as a place where we teach the word of God. Teach the word of God. Right from day one, I've always mentioned this. I am committed to rightly dividing the word of God. And we as a church cannot just rely on what I say. You've got to learn to be faithful students of the word of God too. Allow the Holy Spirit to get your mind going. Allow the Holy Spirit to teach you as you read the word. Not just what comes from me. We need to be committed to preaching the word of God, to rightly dividing the word of God. My heart's desire more than anything else, not just for our church, but for the church in general, is that we would fall in love with the word of God. Fall in love with the word of God, church. I think I desire that more than anything else. We need to be committed as a church to be effective, to be the church God has called us to be. We need to be committed to the word of God. The early church knew the word of God and we as a church need to know the word of God. We need to know the word of God. They took their stand. You know, they're standing on what? God's word. How do, what do we take our stand on? God's word and his promises in our lives. Amen. We got to do the same thing, church. The word of God was their ultimate authority. Who should we obey? What you say or what God says? What do we say? Who should we obey? Somebody else or what God says? Right. We are committed to the word of God and what it says. The Word of God is the ultimate authority, church. We're never going to twist it just to justify our lifestyle. We're never going to compromise it so we don't offend people. We stand, but what, we stand with this cover to cover. That's it. Amen. It is what the Word says. That's how Jesus beat the enemy. That's how, we, that's how we're going to live our lives. And that's what we need to be committed to as a church. Committed to the Scriptures because we know His light, what His Word is like that light and that lamp that guides us, church. Number five, got to be committed to reaching the lost. Time and time again, whenever you say they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and what did they do? They preached boldly. There was a boldness that came upon them. And that boldness allowed them to preach the word. Verse 29, it's absolutely amazing. Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word 
with great boldness. In the midst of, the, in the midst of their, you know, their trial, this hard situation, they weren't, they weren't praying and focused on deliverance, were they? They weren't focused on, on praying like, you know, they wanted to do it earlier. God, just send that fire down on that Sanhedrin the next time they get together or send down that fire wherever they are. They weren't focused on getting back or anything of that sort. What did they pray for? Consider their threats. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Amen. They were committed to preaching. Let's put it this way. They were committed to the great commission. Committed to the great commission. They weren't focused on themselves. They weren't concerned about what people would do for them. They were concerned and consumed by doing what God had told them to do, which is God, go into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples. Time and time again, church, you see it. They were committed to reaching the lost. They were committed to preaching the word of God. They were committed to what? God, give us the boldness we need in the midst of all this to preach your word so that souls will be saved. When things got bad and things came against them, church, all they asked God for was boldness. I pray that's us also. Yes, in our individual lives, but also the church on the whole. That we will have a boldness when the Spirit comes upon us to preach the Word of God. Amen. We're not going to shy away. Again, like I said earlier, we're not going to compromise the truth. We're not just because whatever, you know. We will hold on to the Word of God and we will preach the Word of God with boldness. With boldness. Let God be God, church. Let Him handle whatever He has to do. I'm focused on doing what God has called me to do, which is preach the gospel. And we as a church need to be committed to reaching, reaching the lost. Reaching the lost. Am I saying don't, you know, don't take care of yourself? No, I'm not saying that at all. But the commitment is outward focused also. Be committed to reaching the lost. If you want to be the church that God has called you to be, to be effective. I think when we, here's the thing. These people say, you know, they just look at Peter and John and they say, hey, they were not schoolmen or whatever, you know, like, what do we do with them? I wish the world says that, oh, man, what do we do with these people? They have a boldness like we can't explain because they're committed to preaching and reaching the lost church. It's not about me and my church. It's about those who God wants to save. And we have the task of reaching the lost and preaching to them. Again, not saying neglect your family or don't take care of yourself. But don't forget the call God has placed on our lives. To be the church God wants us to be, we've got to be committed to reaching the lost. To be the world, number six, to be the church God has called us to be in the world, we have to be committed to generosity. We got to be committed to generosity time and time again. Chap the previous chapters too, verse 32, 34, 35, they shared everything they had. From time to time, they sold what they had and brought it to the disciples to distribute it to those in need. I've always said that this church is a generous church. But please understand, we give because God gave. And I think it's always one of the biggest things in my life, the greatest transformation I had in my life is when I understood this principle. 
Yes, the blessings of God are, not, are for me, yes, for me to enjoy. But then I realized the blessings are not just for me. God has blessed me to be a blessing. You know this. You've heard this. You, I've said it before. But we need to get it. We are blessed to be a blessing. We are blessed to be a blessing. Generosity lies at the heart of God and it needs to be at the center of our walk with the Lord as well. Generosity. One of the things that I, I live my rules, I live my life by, I've shared this with all my students. You got to be generous with your time, you got to be generous with your talents, and you got to be generous with your tithe. That's it. Generosity and the reason I give is because God is a generous God. God is a generous God. You know, a lot of people, and I'll throw this in there, a lot of people come to church from, for what do I get or what can I get? And that's not a bad thing. You know, yeah, you need to come to church to get something, but you got to realize the bigger purpose is not what I get, but someone else might need something that I have already. Not just financially, not just, what it's, I'm just not limiting it to that at all. But when you think about the church and a commitment for generosity, you need to have the same attitude, church. I am blessed to be a blessing. Amen. I mean, talk about Sam, Jinu, me. We are all products of people's commitment to missions and generosity. We were all saved and part of, a, 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 our pastor was a missions, an AGW missionary. And we all were saved and kind of grew in that ministry. And we all are products. We are evidence of generosity of people in that area that gave so that the, he could go and preach the word of God. And so we got to be generous. If we want to be the church that God has called us to be, we need to be committed to generosity. Lastly, we've got to be committed to being a community of grace. To be the church that God wants us to be, we need to be committed to being a community of grace. Verse 33. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. I know it's talking about God's grace in their lives, but let me tell you this. Once you have tasted God's grace, you cannot help but show grace to those around you. Once you have tasted His grace, you cannot help but become people of grace. And we need to be committed as a church to be a community of grace. I said this earlier, why do people who have messed up run away from the church rather than run to church? It's because sometimes the church lacks the commitment to grace. Again, it doesn't mean you condemn them, doesn't mean we agree with everything they do, no. But let's be committed to being, being a community of grace. Church, the world desperately, time and time again, the world desperately needs grace. And we, the church, are truly the only people who can show what true grace is all about. Be committed to being dispensers of grace. Again, we're not going to compromise the truth. We're not going to change what the word says. But we are going to be committed to, to being a community of grace where people come and find refuge here. We preach the truth, but we preach it with grace. We hold on to the truth, 
and we hold on to it with grace. If we want to be the church that God has called us to be, we've got to be committed. It starts there, church. Nothing's, nothing can be accomplished. We cannot be effective unless you are committed. Amen. Committed to unity. Not doing your own thing, but committed to unity. Doesn't mean you agree every time, but we're committed to what God has called us to be. Committed to prayer. Yes, personal life, but also corporately. But the idea is we are united in prayer. It's not just gathering together and praying. We're talking about being united in prayer. That's why we say yes and amen. Commitment to unity, commitment to prayer, commitment to be God or Christ-centered in everything we say and do. Commitment to the Word of God. We have to be committed to the Word of God. From cover to cover, we are committed to the Word of God. We've got to be committed to reaching the lost. Committed to the Great Commission, which is focused on the lost. We continue and we do what God, it's God's mission to seek and save the lost. And we're just partnering with Him in that. And so we've got to be committed to reaching the lost. We've got to be committed to being generous. Generosity that lies at the heart of God needs to be at our heart of our walk too. Generous with our time, our talents, and our tithe. Our treasures, like I say. Generous. The last thing was committed to being a community of grace. Let Jesus be at the center of it all, church. We cannot be caught up with me, my, or what's in it for me, what's in it for my family. We've got to always be Christ or God-focused in everything we do. Bow your heads with me at this time. We've got to ask ourselves the question, are we being the church? Are we being the church that God has called us to be? It's not my calling. It's not someone else's calling. <coughs> it's God's mission on are we aligning ourselves with his mission? Are we being the church that the world desperately needs right now are we being obedient to that call like I said it takes several different areas different dimensions to you know whether it be discipleship or you know any kind of ministry any kind of missions whatever are we being faithful to the call God has called us to be the church his hands and his feet in this world today loving God and loving people 